This weekend, we have a special guest who's not really a special guest at all. Yes, he, he is the pastor of Church of the City of Nashville, Tennessee, but, but he's really a part of our teaching team. We love it when he comes to visit us, and God always uses him to touch our lives and to move us forward in our relationship with him. And so would you join me in welcoming Darren Whitehead? G'day everyone. You guys are always so kind to me. This just feels like a home away from home. Although uh, what Brad just said, I'm not really quite sure how to take it. Like he said, I'm not really a special guest. Am I not a guest or not special? (laughs) We'll let you guys decide on that. Hey, I'm so glad to be back with you. Uh, If we have not met before, uh, I was born and raised in Alabama. And uh, (laughs) all right, I was from the South, but from the real South, People say that they're from the south, I'm like, you just think you're from the south. South of the equator is the legitimate south. Uh, From Australia, and uh, some of you having a hard time understanding the way that I speak, you know, we will not have subtitles today, so you're just gonna have to dial it in. I've been living in the US for a long time. I got married to an American girl 14 years ago because I was about to get deported. And, Uh, you know, we fell in love as well, so it sort of worked out on both sides. Um, I, have, I have three daughters, three half Australian, half American little girls. Uh, my eldest is nine, her name is Sydney, and <laughs> thanks for laughing at my kid's name, I appreciate that. I realize it'd be like you calling your kid Detroit, but uh, it works for us, okay? Uh, I have a seven-year-old named Scarlett, or you might say Scarlett. <clears throat> and I have a five-year-old named Violet. These little go- girls are the joy of my life, and uh, they were not happy when I was leaving yesterday to jump on a plane to come be with you, but uh, I'll be back with them again in a couple of hours. I- I'm excited about sharing what I wanna share with you today, because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently over coffee, and we were talking about callings. How, you know, when, when someone gets just crystal clarity on their calling, what they're supposed to do with their life, it's like their passions align all of a sudden and they have unusual focus and it sort of deploys them to be able to be used in a really, really significant way. They, they look at their life differently. Thinking about uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What would you say your calling is? Do you know what it is? Do you know what that cause is, what that passion area is, and you just start to disproportionately deploy your energy towards those things because it it really resonates with your soul. I have a friend who is giving her life to try to solve the foster care problem in our state. And this is what she wakes up in the morning thinking about. I got another friend who started an NGO to work on the water crisis in the world. A billion people still don't have access to clean drinking water. This is what he's given his life to. I got another friend who learned that there are 27 million people today who are in trafficking or in slavery, and he wants to try to rescue these people. This is what he cares about. Uh, I've got another friend who's trying to bring peace to the Middle East. Spends a lot of time in Israel, in the Holy Land, trying to bring peace there. I've another friend who's a mechanic, and he spends all of his discretionary time 
on voluntarily fixing the cars of single moms who would not be able to afford to get that done. Uh, this is his passion, this is his calling. What's yours? Do you know, do you know what it is? Do you ever find yourself looking enviously at another person who just seems to have crystal clarity on what their calling is? I've just been pondering this lately, I've been pondering callings. Callings are a precious thing. How does someone get one? How do they get started? Maybe this weekend would be the beginning of a journey for you to gain clarity on what your respective calling is. Maybe God would use this time that we're gonna have together to help you get focused on that or help you gain unusual clarity. If you brought a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Esther. We're going to spend some time in, in this story. Some of you are familiar with this story. If you're not, let me give you like a really quick flyover of what happens. So it starts out with a guy named uh, King Xerxes, and he's married to Queen Vashti, and the king is hanging out with his mates one night, and they're drinking and all of that, and, and the king's bragging about how beautiful his wife is. He's like, she's smoking, you gotta see her. So he sends one of his servants, and he says, hey, go get Vashti, I just wanna show how, how hot she is to the rest of these guys. So he sends off a servant, servant goes and says, uh, Queen Vashti, uh, the king, would like you to, to come and, uh, and, and appear before he, he and his mates, you know? And the queen's like, let me get this straight. He wants me to put on something skimpy and then go out there and start parading around in front of these drunk dudes? I don't think so. Tell him no. So the, so the, the servant goes back and says to the king, she refuses to come. And the king starts to panic a little bit, right? So he kind of circles up with his wise men, it says with his wise men, and I can only imagine this conversation. The wise men are looking back at the king and saying, hey dude, listen, you're gonna have to take one for the team. Because if this gets out, that it's, it's okay for women just to blatantly ignore us, then all of our wives could be out of control, okay? So you need to make an example out of her. So he says, okay, so that's what he does. He, he throws Vashti out of the palace, and uh, he decides they issue a national decree so that they would uh, have a competition to find uh, the next queen. Not a lot of people know this, but this was actually the first ever season of The Bachelor. <laughs> and uh, th 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 there, were, there were women that were, you know, na nationwide were sitting in their videotapes and you know, all of that kind of stuff, and then they went through them. They did, the Bible says they had a year's worth of preparation and then there was this one night and Chris Harrison walked out, you know. He's like, ladies, King Xerxes, this is the final rose. <laughs> ladies, if you do not receive a rose, if you could say your goodbyes, get in the limo and sob endlessly. You know, like, there's a couple of men in the house that were laughing really hard at that and you're totally outed, you watched The Bachelor, okay? <laughs> I've never seen it, my wife's told me about it. So. Uh, Anyway, the winner of the, the first ever season of The Bachelor was uh, this girl named Esther. She was an orphan, her, her parents had died, and she lived with her cousin named Mordecai. Cousin was older, probably more like an uncle, probably called him Uncle Morty, and she, she was raised by this guy. Now there's one other character you need to know that's important in this story. It's this guy named Haman, and Haman's the nemesis in this story. Haman was one of the officials in the palace, and when he would walk out in the city gates, he walked with swagger and he wanted everyone to bow down to him and cousin Mordecai refused to. He said, I'll only bow down to the one true God. So Haman is just infuriated by this 
And he says, not only am I gonna destroy you, but I'm gonna destroy all your people, and his plan is to wipe out the Jews. So then Esther hears about this, she cashes in all of her equity, she risks her, her life, and she goes before the king and says, by the way, I'm Jewish, and uh, this guy Haman is, is going to wipe out all of my people. Could, could you stop that, please? And uh, King Xerxes says, okay, and Esther saves the, the, the Jewish people. So that, that's the story of what's going on here. But what I want you to do is I want you to turn to uh, chapter four. Because what I've been intrigued by is this biblical story of someone finding their calling. What I'm fascinated by is the moment where Esther all of a sudden sees things clearly. She moves from an innocent bystander to someone who's willing to risk her life for her calling. She risks her position as queen, her access to the palace, the preferential treatment that she now enjoys, even her own life. She's willing to risk it all for a cause that has captured her. In chapter two, the writer points out that Esther gained favor with everyone she came in contact with. She was obedient, she was compliant, she was accommodating. So my question is, what happened to this pretty little orphan girl that moved her from being this quiet, submissive queen to the point of defying the rules of the land and rules of the palace, risking her life for her calling? Well, the point of tension sort of culminates here in verse 10 of chapter four. Look at that. This is a, there's a conversation going on. Esther's just learned that the Jews are about to be slaughtered, and there's a conversation between Esther and her cousin Mordecai, and they're sending a servant back and forward. Uh, it says this, then she instructed him, the servant, to go say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courts without being summoned by the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception is this. For the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to going to the king. Now, the writer wants, to know us, wants us to know something specific here. She hasn't been in the king's presence for a month. Now, the king wasn't alone, right? He had a harem, he had other women and all, all, all of that. She could have been insecure, like maybe he's lost interest in me, he doesn't want me to go back in. Well, think about this in the wider narrative of what's going on. King Xerxes' last wife wouldn't come when he asked her to. Now his next wife, he doesn't ask her to when she comes. Like, like the whole thing would be public embarrassment as far as the king not being able to control his queen. So she really was risking her life. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you've come to royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Famous words from this text, probably the most famous phrase in this text. If you've got a Bible and you haven't got that underlined, underline those profound words. It's the phrase that captures Esther's calling, her purpose. You know, as I've observed people over the years and as I have studied the scriptures, I've looked for the patterns. One thing that I have learned is that people don't find their calling. Callings find people. Story after story, there's a moment 
where people are innocently going about their life and then something happens. They see something. They see people in need or being abused or needing help or speaking up for those who don't have a voice or injustices that need to be made right. People who need to be loved or people who need to be inspired or people who need a fresh start. There's a moment where someone says, someone should do something about this. Moses watched his people being beaten and abused as slaves, and it brought such anguish to his heart that he had a moment, someone should do something about this. Josiah watched Judah and Jerusalem worship bronze statues instead of the one true God, and he had this moment. Someone should do something about this. David watched Goliath threaten and mock Israel. He watched his brothers and sisters be terrified under the, 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 the rule and the intimidation of this Philistine, and David had a moment. Someone should do something about this. The Apostle Paul watched brand new churches start to drift off of their, of their mission, and instead of like trying to reach people with the gospel of hope, they started turning inward and started fighting with, with one another, and the Apostle Paul had a moment. Someone should do something about this. James watched orphans and widows be neglected by society and even neglected by the church, and he said someone should do something about this. Now here we are in this text, right with Esther in her someone should do something about this moment, when Mordecai, her cousin, says this, Esther, that someone is you. When someone gains unusual clarity about what they've got to do, it's not just coming across an arbitrary cause or some sort of random mission. In the scriptures and in life, I've always seen a unique intersection of a couple of things. This is kind of like a formula. You may want to write this down. It's gifts plus passion plus opportunity equals calling. Gifts plus passion, plus opportunity, equals calling. Frederick Beekner famously said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What was Esther's gift? Well, she was stunningly beautiful, she won the bachelor, and she had great favor with the king. Esther 2 verse seven says, this girl who was also known as Esther was lovely in form and features. I want you here and at all of the campuses to turn to the person next to you and say, you are lovely in form and features. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> Couple of gentlemen over there, that was really awkward. I just <laughs> saw that exchange. All right, this, this may be really difficult for you to imagine, but bear with me. I want you to imagine that there was once a time in history where a culture was obsessed with the externals. Women were, va were valued based on their external appearance. Women were objectified for sexual gratification. I know this is crazy. Women feeling trapped by this cultural reality would do whatever they could to try and hold on to their youthful appearance beauty treatments and strict diets and rigorous exercise to try and conform to the image of the ideal. 
I know this is hard to imagine, but there was once a time when older men with wealth and power and influence would try to attract younger women to parade them around as eye candy. I know it's hard to believe, but there was once a culture that existed like that. Now, I just told you I'm raising three little girls. My interest was peaked recently when I came across an article that appeared in the New York Times. Several years ago, a socially conscious group called the Barbie Liberation Organization. Now, this is not a throw a shrimp on the Barbie. I'm talking about the doll Barbie, right? Barbie Liberation Organization, they, they launched a, a prank. They purchased hundreds of G.I. Joe dolls and hundreds of Barbie dolls. This is in New York City. These are the ones where when you, when you push a button, they, they talk, they say these little phrases. So what they did is they took these G.I. Joes and these Barbies and they, they switched the voice boxes in each of them and then, and then put them back in there in, in, into the packaging and then they just quietly returned them back to the stores. Over the next several days, there were reports of hundreds of boys unwrapping their new rugged heroic G.I. Joe only to hear him say in a sweet voice, let's go shopping. Or let's plan our dream wedding. And then a collection of unsuspecting little girls who opened their brand new Barbie in a pretty flowing uh, gown only to hear them say, eat lead, Cobra. (laughs) And I'm coming in to rescue the hostages. Now, I've just got to say, as a guy who is raising daughters, I, for one, am glad that the Bible makes a strong statement in this story that women don't need to be relegated simply to subservient roles, that the true value and contribution of women is not based on their external appearance, that their calling is so much more than waiting for a man to choose them and make them significant. This is a story of a girl who was called and anointed and empowered by God and courageously responded to the call. And when you pushed her button, she didn't say, let's go shopping. She said, I'm coming in to rescue the hostages. And all the sisters in the house said, amen. Amen. Esther's God-given gift enabled her access to the palace. She had unparalleled influence with the king. What is your God-given gift? Maybe you're a leader and you have an uncanny ability to be able to get other people excited about a cause. Maybe you're an artist and you have the ability to help people break out of the mundane and see the beauty and the pain in life or in other people. Maybe you're a hospitable person and you love to nurture and welcome and take care of people. Maybe you're good with numbers or making money or building things or fixing things or teaching. Maybe you're an encourager. Whatever the gifts are that God has given you, it's a clue to what he wants you to do. And then this is coupled with discovering a cause, something that makes your heart beat fast. It evokes a visceral response inside of you. You have a, someone should do something about this moment. And then you start thinking about an opportunity, what you could do. If I partnered with this person and she did this, 
then we would have an opportunity to really make a difference. Verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's easy just to read this as a story. This is a cute story, you know. This girl, whose parents died when she was young, raised by her cousin, is now the queen. She's now in the palace, and she's saying, if this takes my life, then so be it. If I perish, I perish. So deeply held was her passion, she was willing to risk it all. You know, the first time I ever came to Northridge, it was uh, almost four years ago. And I was on staff at a church in Chicago called Willow Creek. And a few years before that, we were hanging out one day, we had a, 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 a researcher, a Christian researcher, who was an expert on the, on, the, on the church in the Western world, came. And this person started sharing about the future of the church and how in many ways in the, in the Western world it's hanging in the balance. One of the specific things was that the most unreached people group in America now, the largest, were people in their 20s, millennials. I was talking about the trend of the number of millennials who were walking away from the church, felt that the church was irrelevant or felt like faith was, was, was not something that they wanted to take on as part of their lives. He said there is a mass exodus of people in their 20s and we as the church must address this. I'm sitting there listening to this guy and I'm thinking, I don't know how much I have ahead of me. Maybe, 30, maybe a 30 year run. Maybe God's got three more decades of me being a pastor. Um, I wonder what God wants me to do. I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, what if I'm supposed to spend the next three decades of my life trying to contend for the future of the church? Trying to reach the most unreached group. My heart started pounding. It was like one of those moments where things started to feel like they were in slow motion. I was just sitting there and I was just listening and I was thinking, what is going on? A couple of weeks later, my wife and I are on a retreat together and we were with a, a small group of people that we didn't know and they didn't really know much about us or our story. We're in another state. And we're talking about risk. And we're sitting there talking and I'm, all, all, I'm feeling like kind of this rise of like God is calling me to, to leave being at the church that I am to try to run towards the generation that is running away from the church. And, and I didn't know what that was gonna look like and I was terrified of it. I, I now had three daughters and a wife and, and I'd never made a, a, a shift. I'd never taken a risk like any sort of substance while I had a family, people who were relying on me and the economy wasn't good. You know, most people would say, you're lucky to have a job in this economy. Why would you like take a, a, a risk to go start something? And I'm sitting around in this group and someone was talking about when God called them to leave and go and do something and someone else shared something else and then it got time for me to share. And I was surprised that when I started to speak, I was so much closer to emotion. I was just imagining the faces of my little girls who uh, are counting on me to provide for them. And I was thinking, I don't wanna be irresponsible as a dad. I wanna give my kids a good, stable upbringing. I wanna be able to provide for them. And, so 
So I start sharing a little bit and then one guy that I didn't even know looks at me and goes, what are you afraid of? And without even thinking, I just blurted back, I'm afraid I'll not be able to provide for my family. And he said this, do you think it's you who provides for your family now? And his words took my breath away. It felt like what I would imagine when Moses was in the wilderness and he's talking to the burning bush and, and, and God says, you're gonna go and you're gonna speak for me and Moses says, I'm not good at speaking, I can't do that and God says what? Who made your mouth? Do you think it's you who provides for your family now? I was right in the center discovering my calling. All of a sudden, I've got a voice saying, that someone is you. Someone should do something about this. That someone is you. That moment triggered a collection of, of moments where I ended up leaving Willow with their blessing and they sent us out. We discovered that in the city of Nashville, in the last 10 years, it had completely reinvented itself. There's 100,000 college students in the city of Nashville. 60% choose to stay after they graduate. Nashville's the number two city in all of the United States for people in their 20s to start their careers. This city was, was one of the hubs of the most unreached age group, the future of the church. So we decided that we were going to risk it all, we were gonna pack up all of our safety and we were gonna start something from scratch. Now, there's a little bit of adjustment when you go from a church of 30,000 to a church of three, and you're in your living room, and you got some guy with a guitar going, this is the day, this, I'm like, what are we, back in 1979? Like, what happened here, you know? It's, it's a lot of adjustment. But on one day, we decided to plant two churches. And uh, this is just under three years ago, about two and a half years ago, we, we planted two churches on the same day both in areas where there's a concentration of people in their 20s, young, young families and people in their 20s. So what we would do is we had two rented spaces. One was a, an elementary school and another was a, a YMCA. And we would go in early in the morning, we would set up a stage and screens and chairs. We would do the service, then we would tear it all down, we'd load it in the back of a trailer, we'd drive across town, and then we'd set it up again and do it all over again before we took it down. It was a long day. And we would do that, we did that for a long time. The first time I came to speak here, I shared my life verse. I think about this verse more than any other verse in all of the Bible. My life verse, for those of you who remember, is Habakkuk 3, verse two. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. This verse captured the angst of my soul. Lord, I have heard that you do all kinds of miraculous things all throughout the Bible and all throughout church history. But God, what I'm asking for is that we would see the unexplainable in our lives, that you would answer our prayer. The thought of going to our graves, having lived a life of just positive lifestyle principles and then we die and we go to heaven, like that's unthinkable to us. We're praying, God, that you would close the gap between what we've heard about and what we experience. You ever felt that tension? You ever felt the tension of like, 
I see God doing extraordinary things in other people's lives, but I live just a pretty ordinary life of a collection of, you know, just being busy and doing stuff. We started to pray that as we took a step of faith, that God would show up in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So we plant these two churches, right? And we grow to almost 1,000 people. And people start saying to us, so when are you gonna be a real church? I'm like, what does that even mean? They said, when are you gonna have a building? When are you gonna have, you know, like facilities and, and that kind of stuff? Without even thinking, I just said, I, I don't think that we're ever gonna build a building. I said, I think someone's gonna give us one one day. In fact, we've started asking God that he would give us a building. We would pray together as a staff at times and just say, God, one day when the timing is right, would you give us a building? So this is last year, about the middle of last year. We end up having this one day, I just feel really impressed on my heart that we're supposed to pray as a church on our knees before God. So we don't do this very often and it, you know, it might have spooked some people out or whatever, but I just said, if you feel comfortable, just get on your knees and we got on our knees and we just said, God, we are a distracted people. And there are so many things that sort of grab our attention and we just wanna come back to you. We wanna be people who are seeking first the kingdom and your righteousness. We wanna live lives that are centered around Jesus and his plans and purposes for our church, for our lives, for our city. We repent before you for being a distracted people and we bring our hearts back. The very next morning, which was what, 12 hours later or something, I get a call from someone that I haven't seen in a decade. This person calls me and says, can we meet? I said, sure, I go and meet with them. I walk in and there's, there's several people in the room. And they said, um, our church, another church in town, they said our church um, has been in decline for a decade. Uh, we haven't hit budget in 10 years. And, um, our pastor has just unexpectedly transitioned. Now, we just want you to pray about something. Could we join you? Could we join your mission and vision and values? Can we join your family of churches? We have two buildings. We have 50 acres worth of property. We have one building that seats almost 2,000 people. It's 128,000 square feet of space, what if we just gave that to you so that God could actually expand his borders and what he's wanting to do through this mission and vision and values? I'm like, well, let me pray about that. <laughs> we, uh, we did take some time to pray about it. We, we, we took actually months to pray about it. And uh, their church and our church, we had a, a collection of just getting on our knees together. We took 40 days in a, in a specific season of focused prayer. And then in September, we moved into two brand new renovated facilities and we started a whole new chapter. Now we have over 4,000 people coming to our church and there is just like an extraordinary outpouring of what God is doing. Amazing. One, one last thing. We, we inherited debt when we, when, when we joined. Uh, they had $7 million of debt. And uh, that was a bit of a tough pill to swallow for my church. It was debt-free and, you know, young and just 
light and happy and you know, things were going well, we were growing fast, the whole thing. So um, I, said, I said to to our church, you know, like if we do this, then we're gonna take on $7 million of debt. Well, uh, after about a month of being in that building, I just sensed the Lord impress on my heart to say before our congregation, what if we would pay off all this debt? What if we would do something that's just crazy? We'd pay off $7 million of debt. And not in like a, a building campaign where we do it over, you know, seven to 10 years and, and you know, we just sort of make installments. What if we got aggressive and we just said, let's pay this thing off. Now I said, this is what it's gonna mean. It, it might mean you don't go on a vacation this year. It might mean that you don't get a new car. You don't you know, put an extension on your home. This is gonna take sacrifice. But what if the first summit that we climb together in this new era is we become debt free as a church? Who would be into that, right? So we start talking about that. We start praying about that. And we raise $7 million in seven weeks so we can be debt free. God just does it. It's been such a joy. Next, next month, we plant our fourth campus, and God has just been pouring out his spirit on our church. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Would you renew them in our day? In our time, make them known. I came to the U.S., thinking I was supposed to work in the media, and my heart was ambushed by the church. My heart was captured by the church, contending for the future of the church, and my passion has only increased. The church that began in Acts chapter two is the same movement that we are part of today. It is the bride of Christ. I wanna see the fame and deeds of God renewed and known in our day. I wanna see the church rise up and be a city on the hill. I wanna see the bride of Christ be a movement where the kingdom of God comes. This is what I wanna give my life to. So what's your thing? What's the cause? What's the passion that makes you say someone should do something about this? I have friends who work with under-resourced single moms. I have a friend who is working with the homeless. I have friends who are taking in foster children because of their passion for vulnerable children. I have a friend who's trying to help young people who are depressed and suicidal and who cut themselves. Last thing that I'm gonna share, and this is really important that you hear this. Maybe you're waiting for God to show up in some unmistakable way. You're waiting for some sort of riding across the sky or display of power to show you what you're supposed to do. Do you know that God is not mentioned at all in the entire book of Esther? Not once. No mention of God or Lord or prayer or anything else that even alludes to the fact that there is a God. Why is that? Do you think that the author forgot? gets to the end, wait, I forgot to mention God, my bad. Do you think that that's what's going on here? No, this is called a literary technique. The writer is trying to communicate something by purposely omitting references to God. 
You see, the Old Testament is full of stories of parting the Red Sea and fire falling from heaven and sending plagues. But in this story, the Jews are delivered through a, a string of connected, regular, normal circumstances. My life is mostly like that, by the way. I have not seen a lot of seas parting or fire falling from heaven. But when I look back on my life, I see weaved together people and circumstances and events and timing. All of these things culminate where it's unmistakable. God has revealed his purpose and his calling for my life through stringing circumstances together. He is no less at work in the circumstances of our lives than in the miraculous or the unexplainable. So what's your thing? What's the cause that you wanna give your life to? What makes you look around and say, someone should do something about this? Think about your story. Think about the needs that you see around you. Think about the wounds that you have experienced. All these things are reading your story and looking for the calling that God has on your life. There are so many amazing causes that are going on within the community of Northridge. So many people in need, so many different ways of serving the next generation. I mean, it is just opportunities everywhere to find your calling. Maybe God is weaving a collection of circumstances together and people and timing and your story, maybe even your pain, so that you would be able to see this is my calling. What opportunities can you step into? All right, last thing we're gonna do just to close our service is we're gonna pray. What I think is really important is that we don't just take time in the word of God and then go, that's great, and we all go to lunch, but that we would pray, God, we would respond to the word of God. We would respond to what you have said. What does this mean to us? We know what it meant to them in the original context and in that time. What does it mean to us in 2016 in Michigan? What is God saying to us? If you don't have clarity for what God is calling you to do, I wanna invite you to stand and I wanna close our service by praying for you. Or if there is someone that you love that doesn't have clarity, it's a son or a daughter and, and they're trying to discover their calling, stand on behalf of someone else and pray up a storm that God would give them clarity on what they're supposed to do. Callings are precious things. They cause us to get out of bed in the morning differently. They, they cause us to passionately pursue something. Don't you want that? Don't you wanna have a calling that is clear so you can pour your heart out into the purposes of God in the kingdom of God? So if that is you, I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna close our time together in prayer. Stand for yourself if you want greater clarity. Stand for someone else. If you know of someone that you love and you just want them to get crystal clear on what God has called them to do. Let's pray together. God, we recognize that it's no coincidence that we are spending time in the book of Esther today, that we're talking about calling. Believe, God, that you are talking to people all over this place. For the people that are here and at all the campuses, for the people that are not here and someone else is standing 
with them in mind, I pray, God, that you would just release your spirit in an unusual way. I pray that today and tomorrow and this week that there would be conversations and that there would be circumstances and that there would be words spoken and there would be a sense in people's hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the way that you speak into us, the way that you're deploying us. You have given us all different gifts. You have given us different abilities. You have given us different passions. We're wired differently and you're deploying us to be a part of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that you would use us, God. We recognize that callings are precious things. When we look around and say, someone should do something about this, and we hear your voice saying, that someone is you. So I pray, God, that you would divide this up in a thousand different ways and speak to people, burden people, deploy people, that we may see beautiful things take place in this city and beyond. So this is our prayer, and we pray.